You can turn to Genesis chapter 15 to, as we resume our study where we left off in the life of Abram, not yet Abraham. And we recognize in the scriptures that Abram, Abraham is used as an example of faith. He's the father of the faith, as he is called. And the Bible tells us that the just shall live by faith. The justified ones, the children of God, are to live by faith. And so Abraham becomes an example of what it means to live by faith. And what we see in this chapter is God developing Abram's faith. Now, Abram, Abram was used last week, as we saw, as an example of salvation by faith. But we recognize as well we are to live by faith. We are to be people of faith. We are to anchor our faith in God and his word. I don't know if any of you have ever seen people that like to climb rocks. And we were visiting Zion National Park years ago. And as we drove into this one, one uh, parking lot, and we came to this rock face that I guess was around 1,000 feet straight up. And I looked up at that thing, and I saw these little dots up on this rock face. I thought, what is that? And those are people somehow climbing this rock face. And what was startling to me is I looked further up, there was a couple of hammocks hanging from the rock face. You know, and all they do is they take these little pegs, you know, and pound them into cracks in the rock and, uh, and hang the hammock and, and uh, take a nap. Now, I don't know about you, but that wouldn't be a very good night's sleep for me. Because in my experience, when something begins to crack, that means it's ready to break. But that's where they pound their stakes. They've got a lot of faith in those little stainless stakes, pivots they may call them, or pythons or something like that, I've heard it called. And a lot of faith in those stakes hanging in the rock to be able to hang a hammock and take, get a restful night's sleep. But you know, those little pivots illustrate for us the importance of where our faith is anchored and where our faith is secured. And what we see here in, the, in, in this chapter, in chapter 15, in this account of Abram, is God seeking to strengthen and direct Abram's faith to the right object, to the right pivot, to the right anchor point, so that he can be bold in, in his walk with the Lord, so he can be confident in his God. In the first part of this chapter, we saw last time that God was reaffirming Abram's faith because Abram had asked God, as we saw last time, you know, where's my child? All these years are going by and I'm childless and how am I going to be the father of many nations when I don't have an heir? And of course he came up with plan B. But what God did to, to strengthen Abram's faith is to, re, is to repeat his word. He repeated the promise, the Abrahamic covenant that he had made and had repeated to Abram. And he says, no, you are going to be the father of many nations. And yes, you are going to inherit this land. <clears throat> so in a simple way, he brings them back to his word, his initial promise that he had made. And it reminded me of a verse in Romans 10, verse 17, that says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You see, faith has to have an anchor point. Faith has to have an object. The very nature of the word faith believe and trust, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> I must be nervous about hanging from a cliff this morning, but the very nature of those words means that we have to believe in something, trust in something, have faith in something. Yet faith in the, in the very structure of the language requires an object. And Romans 10, 7, 17 points out that that object of our faith is God's word. We have an intelligent faith. That's what it means to walk by faith. It's faith in right information, about God, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry, 
God and his promises. And that's why faith is not a feeling. It's not a feeling. It's a conviction in right information. And though faith might be accompanied with joy and praise and thanksgiving and, re and so on, it is a confidence in the surety of a God and his word. And that's why in that wonderful passage in Ephesians 4 that we studied about the local church says, but speaking the truth in love, we may grow up into him. That's how we grow. I think you need a bigger bottle this morning, but thank you. Double, you, want, you must want me to preach a long time this morning. No. That was way too quick. <laughs> Speaking the truth in love, we may grow up into him. That is what we need to, for our faith to grow. In order for God to encourage Abram's faith, he had to bring him back to that anchor point, to his promise and, and remind him, it says, yes, I will fulfill my promise. You're going to be the father of many nations. You will inherit this land. And that's our responsibility as a church, to speak the truth in love and that we all may grow up in our faith. Our faith may be strengthened. In the pastoral letters to the churches, Timothy is told in 2 Timothy 4, 2, to preach the word. That's his responsibility. In, in Titus 2, verse 1, Pastor Titus is told, but as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. And so, he's, and so as a church, as an assembly, we are to highlight the word of God. We're to hold forth the word of life so that we have an anchor point. We have confidence in the word of God, in a, in, in a God who keeps his promises. And so in verses 4 through 7, as we saw last time, God reassures Abraham of his promise, of his word. But another thing we see here then in the last part of the chapter is we see that God reaffirms his character in order to strengthen Abram's faith. He is a God who cannot lie. And he demonstrates that fact through, through personally enter into, entering into a legal contract, so to speak, to remind Abram that God does not lie. And what we find here, beginning of verse 8, is God participating in what was a custom of the day of the signing, so, so to speak, of a contract or a covenant. Let's, be, let's go ahead and read, beginning in verse 8, where Abraham said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? Well, God had just reassured him, but Abraham needs faith, needs more, needs more of a booster shot, so to speak. And so verse 9, God said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other that he did not cut the birds, but he did not cut the birds in two. <clears throat> and when the vultures came down on the, on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. 
On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the Kenites, the, Ke the Kenezites, the, the, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gagashites, and the Jebusites. So what we see here is God participating in a, what would be a common practice in those days, in the binding of a covenant, when they would cut an, offer a sacrifice, cut the animal in half, and pass between the pieces. I think Dr. McGee pointed out that this is no not much different than going to the notary public that you would today in order to seal a contract. And there's an illustration of this in Jeremiah chapter 34, which, which, which affirms that this was customary. So let's turn there. Let's go ahead and turn to Jeremiah chapter 34. And I think this is what we're seeing because what we find here in the book of Jeremiah is God holding the Israelites accountable for their covenant that they had made when they passed between the pieces. So let's pick it up here in verse 8. And we'll see this firsthand. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people who were at Jerusalem to proclaim liberty to them, that every man should set free his male and female slave, a Hebrew man or woman, that no one should keep a Jewish brother in bondage. Now when all the princes and all the people who had entered into the covenant heard that everyone should set free his male and female slaves, that no one should keep them in bondage anymore, they obeyed and let them go. But afterward, they changed their minds and made the male and female slaves return whom they had set free and brought them into subjection as male and female slaves. Therefore, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I made a covenant with your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, saying, At the end of seven years let every man set free his Hebrew brother who has been sold to him, and when he has served you six years, you shall let him go free from you. But your fathers did not obey me, nor incline their ear. Then you recently turned and did what was right in my sight, every man proclaiming liberty to his neighbor, and you made a covenant before me in the house which is called by my name. Then you turned around and profaned my name, and every one of you brought back his male and female slaves whom you had set at liberty at their pleasure and brought them back into subjection to be your male and female slaves." Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and everyone to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim liberty to you, says the Lord, to the sword, to the pestilence, to the famine, and I will deliver you to trouble among all the nations of the earth. And I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not performed the words of the covenant, which they made before me when they cut the calf in two and passed between the, the parts of it, and so on. And so you can see that not only had God proclaimed in the Mosaic law in which he made a covenant with Israel, but here, the, uh, apparently under Zedekiah, they had made a covenant to return to that practice of freeing their Hebrew slaves every seven years. And, and, and after that happened, they, uh, um, they, they went back on their commitment, on their covenant, on their promise, and God is holding them accountable. And God takes those kind of covenants, those, those promises that we make to God, seriously, doesn't he? And he, here he's holding them accountable. And so when you go back to Genesis 15, we find God here is, is, participates in that same practice, and he is going to hold himself accountable just as he did Israel 
in the matter in Jeremiah. And what God is doing is he's demonstrating the immutability of his character in order to strengthen Abram's faith. And that's another way God strengthens our faith, is to remind us who he is. That he is a God who is sovereign, he's all-powerful, he cannot lie, and it's the character of God that backs up the promises of God that assures our faith. Now this is summarized for us over in the book of Hebrews. If you, so if you turn there next to Hebrews chapter 6, and we see this event referred to here as the writer of Hebrews is trying to convince the Jewish believers to trust the Lord and to, and to believe in the Messiah, the Savior. Hebrews chapter 6. Here, verse 13, the writer reaches back to this event in Genesis 15 when he says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for the confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise, Abraham and his seed, the immutability of his counsel, he cannot lie or does change, he confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong consolation or encouragement who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters into the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so we have here mentioned for us in verse 18 two immutable things. What are the two immutable things? God's promise, first of all, and he cannot lie. God simply stated, stated to, to Abraham, or Abram at this time, that you will have a seed, you will inherit the land. And the second immutable thing is the contract God entered into by virtue of this ritual of passing between the halves. And God here, in the book of Hebrews, just as in the life of Abram wants to assure his people that God keeps his word, that God, that God is a God who can be trusted. We can trust his promise because God stated it, and in He, we can trust it because, because of the character of God that is behind the promises of God. And so we talk about trusting the Lord in our lives. The just shall live by faith. It involves those two things, doesn't it? Involves this simply the fact that God has declared in his word his promises, his teachings, his precepts. But we also recognize as we get into the word of God, as we search the pages of scripture, we discover a God who cannot lie, a God who is all-powerful, a God who backs his promises, answers prayer. He is a faithful God, and thus we can trust his word. And the result here is strong consolation. It strengthens our faith, strong encouragement. It encourages us to trust him. And we need that because we have such a propensity to trust our own plan. Just like Abram back in Genesis 15, Abram, after, after a few years of not having a child, he says, well, how about this Eliezer, if you remember last time? Here's plan B. Here's my plan. Here's how I would do it, God. And God says, no, 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 that's not how it's going to be. We have such a propensity to turn to our own plans that God often has to let our plans shatter to bring us to the end of ourselves. 
Because our first look should always be to God. Our first answer in a trial should always be, be prayer. Our first dependence should always be God. You know, in the Old Testament, God encouraged his people, even, in, even at times of great distress, to look to him first, even if the help would come from another source. It was a recognition that God is the one who watches over us. And so let's go back to Genesis 15, and let's take a, let's, let's take a closer look at this as God seeks to encourage, to bring strong encouragement or consolation to Abram's faith at a time when he's not getting any younger. Remember, that's the, that's the backdrop to this story. He's, he's not getting any younger, and how is he going to father a great nation? He's living in a land and dwelt by other nations. How in the world is he going to possess it? All these things that, that would rail against the natural mind, and God seeks to encourage and strengthen Abram's faith because the Christian life in our wanderings in this world, our life in this world is much like Abram's. We are surrounded by a, by a lot of rationalistic thinking, a thinking that would assault our thinking if it wasn't for the perspective of God and, and to stand for Christ, to live for Christ, to make decisions based on thus saith the Lord, to trust Him with our very lives and being is, is to live countercultural. We don't live like anybody else. We don't march to the same drumbeat. We don't have the same perspectives. We make decisions by faith that people will think are completely irrational and insane. But when God leads, he has the power to back up his promise and to keep his word and sustain his people. And so in verse 8, Abram says, well, how will I know? That question, how will I know? When God says, here you go, I'm going to prove my character, that I am a God who cannot lie. And in verses 9 and 10, then, God schedules the, 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 the sacrifice. He schedules an appointment with, with the notary and says, okay, I'm going to prove it to you. I'm, gonna I'm, I'm going to prove that I am a dependable God. And so he tells him to get the sacrifice. And then in verse 11, this verse in there says that when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. I don't know what the significance of that is. The Bible doesn't say. I believe it could be symbolic in the sense that, that Satan will do anything he can to prevent us from knowing God and his word. And, and like these ravens are the, these, um, or vultures, excuse me, are a picture of Satan's opposition to God. And he often does that through undermining his word. No different than back in the garden, hath God said. He brings us to question and wonder, is God's word the right way? You look around us, and the tragic tragedy of the church today is that we are, the church as a whole is accommodating the culture. People are tending to, to be, in Christian churches, are tending to accommodate, whether it's scientific thinking, the social engineering, and the church is changing, where the church is the one that should have effect on the culture. The church is the one that should be standing fast and keeping the culture from trending away from the word of God. Instead, it's accommodating because Satan has managed to put doubt in people's minds. And I believe it's because we, the churches no longer, in too many cases, dig into the deep things of the word of God. Because faith comes by hearing and the hearing of the word of God. And when our churches become mere places of storytelling, people begin to go backwards. As I said in Hebrews, you know, at one time you could take solid meat. But instead we feed the people in the churches junk food today. They don't have the discernment and they become prone for every wind of doctrine. 
today. Satan will always undermine God's word and authority, and that's why we go back to the books time and time again, do we not? Well, in verse 12, Abram has a, has a nightmare, as I would describe it. Great darkness came, came upon him. And maybe that's in regards to the message that he received at this time as God spoke to him in this, in this nightmare. When he told him that your descendants, you're going to have descendants, but they're going to be for 400 years in slavery, captivity. That might have been with the horror and the great darkness to think that your grandchildren, children and grandchildren, are going to be, at least some generation, is going to be 400 years in slavery. That's a long time. 400 years of slavery in Egypt. But the good news of this passage, after verse 13, God says they're going to afflict them for 400 years. You know, we look around today, and we look at the trend of our nation today, and those of you who are close to my age sometimes shudder for your grandchildren at what's, gonna, what's going to occur. But then we look back. At the, at the history of the church, whether it's the events we find in the Word of God or whether it's events of more recent history, that God is able. Greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. And, we, and, we, and when we look horizontally, we, we panic. But when we look up, we have an anchor point, don't we, that can give us confidence that the darker the world gets, the brighter our lights could shine. And so though they were going to be afflicted for 400 years, God says, when it's done, when it's done, I'm going to judge them in verse 14. I'm going to judge them first of all. And God always punishes those who afflict his children, whether in time or in eternity to come. But then he also says something interesting. He says, afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. And so God was going to allow the 400 years of affliction and slavery to Egypt to build a nation. And the nation flourished. Even when they were going to kill the firstborn. And remember, the Bible indicates to us that the nation grew even faster. God grew a nation under this, under this place of affliction, just like he grows us today, doesn't he? That's what, you know, God uses trials, doesn't he? to strengthen our faith, according to James and 1 Peter. And afterwards, this nation, after being afflicted, they're going to come out with great possessions. And so God not only built the nation in Egypt, but he built it at their expense. Exodus 12, 36 tells us that when they left, they plundered the Egyptians when they left under Moses. God made them rich. He, he provided their needs. He gave them cattle and sheep and so on. And maybe what God was doing, I couldn't help but think this, was God was returning to Israel, to the Jews, what they had earned for the Egyptians under slavery. And God said, you think that's theirs, but my people made that happen, and they're taking it with them. And they plundered the Egyptians. And so God developed a nation and equipped the nation at Egypt's, Egypt's expense, though those 400 years. They were to look forward to this time of deliverance. Because this wasn't forgotten. I, Joseph, at the end of his life, mentioned that God's going to come and deliver you from this, from this nation someday. 
And that's why he said, save my bones, because you bring them out when you go. In Genesis 50, 24, Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And so that was passed down. And I don't know how many of those millions of people that were in Egypt when they left knew that God was going to deliver them, but the promise had been made. And so what we find here is a promise that is actually prophetic, that God was going to judge this nation and deliver his people and bring them out with much possessions. And then he goes on to say in verse 15, now as for you, how about you? Because the promise initially came to Abram. You shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Now Abram must have recognized that Okay, 400 years, my descendants, I don't know when this is going to start. It's actually about 430 years, I guess. They, he said, you know, that means that I'm not going to really see the fulfillment of this promise. I'm not going to see the, the descendants as the seashore, the sand on the seashore, the stars in the sky. I may not see us possess the land. But God comforted him. He says, you're going to go to your fathers in peace. You're going to live a good old age. But verse 16, in the fourth generation, it shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. You know, one of the aspects of faith that we can learn here is that we can wait on the Lord. We are to wait on the Lord as we serve him. Sometimes God's promises and even answers to prayer do not come immediately. But God just says to wait. Turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 11, because this hall of fame of faith, this chapter of faith, the faith chapter, makes a point of this concept that these people who are used as an example of faith live faithfully in spite of not receiving the promise. Hebrews 11, verse 8 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place where he would receive an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He waited. He waited. Now, when you think about it, you know, God made Abraham a promise, brought him from Ur, the Chaldees eventually led him into the promised land. And though Abraham didn't know when it was going to happen, he was confident that it was going to happen. He was waiting for this city, this land, whose builder and maker was God. He's willing, waiting for God to fulfill his promise. And maybe if we're like the rest of us, he expected, well, if God's going to move me here, then God's going to move. And it's going to happen. And we're going to have a city. And we're going to live in peace and bounty under the, under the rule of our God. Well, day after day, he doesn't have a child. Day after day, the, the Canaanites are still in the land. And God doesn't ever promise us the, the fulfillment of his plan on our schedule, does he? He just tells us to trust him. If you jump down to verse 13, here it says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, Embrace them and confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. See, God doesn't want us to focus on the results. He just wants us to focus on him. 
to trust him. That's what these people of faith did. They, they, they went through trials and tribulations and challenges and difficulties. And, and then God tells Abraham, 400 and some years, your people are going to be afflicted. But God's promise will come true. In fact, much of God's promise to Abram is yet to come true. There's going to be a day coming, according to Old Testament prophets, in which Israel's going to be regathered, and Jesus will finally sit on the throne of his father David and rule in Israel for the rest of, the rest of time and into eternity. In our study in Zechariah, we found that God promises when that day occurs in Zechariah 14. That when Jesus comes and, and establishes his rule and regathers his people and the earth is bountiful, that no more destruction or desolation will come to Israel. That is yet future. And we know God's going to accomplish that because God has kept the promises in his word throughout history. Not one word has failed. At the end of verse 16, it mentions something in the middle of this passage when he says, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And here we have a, a note referring to the mercy of God in reality. And it's interesting, just as in the first half of this chapter, we saw a short reference to God's justification by faith. Abraham believed God. It was counted to him for righteousness. He was made righteous in Christ because he had trusted Christ, or tr he trusted the word of God. And he becomes an example of our salvation. And the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he, God, has made Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin. He was innocent. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And in order for you and I to enter eternity, we must be found righteous. And Paul says in his testimony, it's not my righteousnesses, which is from law keeping, but the righteousness which comes by faith in Christ. And so we find that wonderful note in the first half of this chapter. Here we find a reference to the mercy of God because what he is saying here is that I'm going to hold off on judging the Amorites because my patience has not run out, so to speak. Their iniquity is not complete. I think the old King James says their, their iniquity was not full. In other words, God was going to give the Amorite, the Canaanite nations, 400 years to turn to him. That's what this is saying. In other words, Israel, you're going to be afflicted and you're going to tolerate the affliction because in my mercy, I'm going to give the Amorite nations, before you go in, conquer the land and dispatch the nations, I'm going to give them 400 years to turn to me. You see, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so sometimes in affliction, we don't know. Why, is it, why 400 years? God, why is it taking you so long to come? Jimmy, Joseph said you're going to deliver us out of this land. Why is it taking so long? And and sometimes we don't know, but God had a plan. And that plan in this case involved the opportunity for those in Canaan to turn to Jehovah God. And that idea of the mercy of God coming to an end in particular parties' cases is, is, is frequent in Scripture, isn't it? You can't help but think about the ark when that door was closed and the waters began the rains begin to fall. But that was it. And people may have been pounding on the door of the ark, but God, they had their opportunity for all those years the ark was preparing to hear the message of Jehovah. We couldn't help but think of even Jerusalem and Israel. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 23? 
He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets, stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more, till you see, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in AD 70, God ransacked Jerusalem. And they're scattered as a nation. God set them aside. And he's not done with them. There will be a restoration someday, but in the meantime, he's building his church, is he not? Another, another occasion is the seven churches in Revelation. Remember what Jesus said in Revelation 2.5 to the church at Ephesus? Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lamp, lamp stand from its place unless you repent. And so in this case, God says, I'm going to remove your lampstand, which we believe is a reference to the pastor, the Bible teachers, the under-shepherds who served under the great shepherd to communicate the word of God. And he says, you know, unless you turn around, I'm going to pull your light. And that happens. And it has happened throughout history when people turn from the, from the truths of God and salvation by faith alone in Christ. The whole tribulation to come, leading to the second coming, is an opportunity in the day and age in which we live for people to turn to Christ. I mentioned 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slackled, turning his promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And God is, and you wonder, why is God putting up with this? You ever thought about that? You look around us in the world and just shake your head at the darkness? depravity, the brokenness. You say, God, why, you know, what are you waiting for? Well, my plan is, like, let's get off this ship and let's get on into eternity. But God is trying to save those saved souls, build his church. But later on, verse 15 of that chapter, it says, I consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. And so God asks you and I to continue to labor and to labor and to labor in winning souls to Christ and bringing people to Jesus so that he can save as many as he can. But someday, when God ramps up the, the tribulation, in the tribulation period, and those great hailstones fall down and all the, all the plagues of the tribulation to come in order to turn people to back to himself, someday that horse is going to appear with Jesus on his back. And it's going to be over. And God's mercy will be complete. Well, going back to Genesis 15 here, we find then that it came to pass in verse 17 that God signed the contract. He passed through the elements. We see, we see here that in verse 17, what Abram saw was a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. Now we're not sure exactly the symbology of that. It could be a torch refers to Jesus as the light of the world and the oven refers to judgment. refers to the, both the the, the holiness of God and the, and the justice of God. But the point is, is that if you note this, is that only one party went between the pieces. That's what's significant. Only one party. This is a one-sided contract. We call it an unconditional covenant. God's the one who made the commitment. It's not conditioned on man alone. That way, for the contract to be broken, there's only one party that can break it. And we've already seen God who cannot lie. 
God is a God is a faithful God who keeps his word, who does not change, who's exalted his word above his name. And therefore, this promise that God has made is an unconditional promise that he gave to Israel. And that's why we believe it is yet, the, the, the fulfillment of this covenant is yet to be completed in eternity future. And so we see this covenant supported by all the prophecies of the Old Testament that promise the restoration of Israel to their land. And so what we find here in this chapter is God giving us an example of how he simply strengthens our faith. Because faith is not something we muster up in ourselves. You know, people of great faith aren't people because they somehow have a greater measure of trustability or trusting or whatever. It's because they've come to know a great God. Because they've been in the word of God and discovered the promises of God. And we've discovered the God of the promises. And faith is strengthened as we discover the greatness of God and the word of God. We're convinced to trust God. And I think sometimes in the Bible throws out an appeal to us, trust. I mean, taste and see. Is what the, what, and what, it, what he's encouraging us to do is not only to taste and see the goodness of the grace of God and the wonder of his person, but to, tr to trust him. Step out by faith. Do something different than, than as God would lead. That is not do something different for the sake of doing it different, but be willing to live different cult culturally because we can trust God. We can trust him with our all, with things that are most valuable to us. We can trust him with our, our jobs, our children, our families, our churches, and our nation. It's to him we must look because as Christians, the just shall live by faith. We are to trust God who is faithful to his promises and that God is able to keep his promises. And maybe one more aspect of the walk of faith is when we view the word of God, we also recognize that because of the God behind it that his word works, so to speak. It delivers what was promised whether it's joy or peace or comfort or strength, when you claim the promise of God, if you rest in, his, in that promise, if you trust God with that promise, it delivers. That's taste and see. It delivers. God keeps his promise. It's a, it's, it, it works. This book before us is the foundation and anchor point of our lives. It ought to be. And therefore... Get in the word. If faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God, get to know the word and the God of the word that our faith, that our faith might be strengthened. Because Hebrews eleven six says, without faith it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and I believe that's a reference to he is who he says he is, and that he is a rewarder, that his word works. He rewards those who diligently seek him. How diligent we are, we yet seeking him. It's easy to do our duty and come to church on Sundays, but where is the word of God in our relationship with God the rest of our lives? Are we seeking him and are we discovering his beauty and wonder in his word? And, you know, when we open up the word of God together, whether it's in a Bible study, a church service, family devotions, what leaps off the pages is the beauty and wonder of God. It's more than memorizing Bible stories or technical details about the Bible. It's discovering the beauty of a person and his holiness and the wonder of his righteousness in how God works in his life. And that's why Jeremiah 15, 16 says this, your words were found and I ate them. I consumed them. I chewed on them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing in my heart, for I'm called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. It's kind of simplistic, isn't it? But God has made it simple. 
He says, just seek me. And that's why I appreciate that prayer of the apostle. After he gives his testimony in Philippians 3, he says that I may know him. I want to know him. And by getting to know him, I'll know the power of his resurrection, the new life we have in Christ, and even the fellowship of his sufferings, a life that is worth living. Are we seeking him? Are we allowing God to strengthen our faith? Are we tasting and experiencing a dependence upon God in every aspect of life? You know, it takes the wear and tear out of life when we entrust ourselves to God, because that's what faith is, isn't it? It's not only trusting God, it's entrusting ourselves to him, and he is able. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this example you show us in the life of Abraham, Father, how you so simply in everyday living are seeking to uh, reaffirm and strengthen the faith of Abraham. Father, you have made him promises, Father, that he was waiting on. And Father, sometimes when we wait on you, we tend to let our minds scheme and turn to other devices. But Father, help us to learn that rest of waiting, of trusting, of entrusting ourselves to you. And Father, for you are able. You've told us that you've begun a good work in us and you will perform it to the day of Christ. You've given us promises of strength and courage and comfort of ability and enablement and provision and care. And Father, help us to, to know those promises and to trust the God of the promises. So Father, strengthen our faith, but help us to be diligent in seeking you in your word. In Jesus' name.